Last Sunday, we uh, briefly looked at how uh, labor is described in the Olivet Discourse and how that parallels the way the tribulation is described in the book of Revelation. And when we did that, we, uh, we, spent, we spent four weeks looking at the tribulation period and we've kind of created a continuum that it's a seven year period of time. Uh, midway through it is the abomination of desolation. So there's the beginning of birth pains and then there is the great tribulation. So this is the kind of continuum that we developed. And then as we turned to the book of Revelation last Sunday, we found out that the tribulation is, uh, spans three sets of judgments. And so uh, you've kind of, we've kind of got this one picture in our head about what the tribulation is, and then when you go to, to the book of Revelation, you've got seals, trumpets, and bowls. And so what we try to do is to try to drop that blanket over the top of this existing continuum that we have. And so uh, this is the timeline that we looked at last Sunday. And you can see the, uh, we're particularly interested in the tribulation period, and you can see the midway point is the abomination of desolation. So that's kind of like a, a nail sticking up out of a board. And so as we begin to drop this blanket over the top of that, seals, trumpets, and bowls, uh, lions, tigers, and bears, when we start trying to drop this over that, where is that nail going to hit that? And that was what we were really trying to uh, look at last Sunday. And so you can see that the book of Revelation kind of un unveils the tribulation period in a little bit different way. And last Sunday, uh, because of the cataclysmic events that are described in the Olivet Discourse in verses 24 and 25, um, uh, because these, two, these events that are described in these two verses come after the abomination of, uh, abomination of desolation, then we moved this event on the opposite side, on the other side, on the last half of the tribulation period. We did this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're studying the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus goes through these a number of things that describe the beginning of birth pains, wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, plagues, earthquakes, persecution. And then there's the abomination of desolation. And after that, where these things are described in verses 24 and 25. They're occurring afterwards. And the reason we can move that on the, uh, into the second half is additionally compounded by the fact that uh, the sixth seal in the book of Revelation is describing the same events. And so... Uh, this is the slide that we walked through last Sunday. And you can see how these seven seals unfold in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 6. These cataclysmic events that we see in verses 24 and 25 involve the sun and the moon being darkened, stars falling from the skies, the, the heavens are shaken, and then the Son of Man returns. And so you can see that those events actually occur in that sixth seal. That massive earthquake and uh, the sun and moon darkened and falls falling from the sky. So this is why we moved seal number six on the other side of the midway point in the tribulation period. 
In our passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus returns at the end or at the conclusion of the tribulation. So let's read that together. It begins at verse 24. It says, But in those days after that tribulation, after the first half, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great, with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the end of the sky. When we look at the second half of the tribulation in the Olivet Discourse, there's not much information. As a matter of fact, all we're really told about is these events in verses 24 and 25. And it gives the impression that right after these events occur, the Son of Man returns. It says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, the celestial powers will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So it gives every impression from what Jesus is teaching that these events are back to back. But from other places in the Bible, especially what we looked at in the book of Revelation, we see that a great deal of things happen between this sixth seal and Jesus' return. An incredible amount of things happen. Basically, the, the majority of the book of Revelation talks about events that occur between these two. And so what Jesus is actually doing here is He is creating bookends for the second half of the tribulation. From the sixth seal to my return. He's putting the A to the Z, the beginning and the end, on this second half of the tribulation period. You can't tell that when you're listening to Him when He was teaching the disciples, overlooking the city. Remember, they're on the side of the Mount of Olives and they're overlooking the city and this is when this is occurring. So when they're listening to Jesus, they don't see all of that. It's going to come later. They're going to find out these things much later. There are many, many events that occur between the two. Um, in this slide here, we see a chart that un unwraps each one of the seals, each one of the trumpets, and each one of the vials or bowls. Now, Jesus returning is not really a judgment. So, uh, the bookend really is from judgment to judgment, and then He returns. And so it's very interesting and worth noting that the sixth seal is an incredible earthquake. We remember that that earthquake was so great and it was accompanied by all of these celestial things occurring, falls, fall, stars falling, but the mountains and the islands are actually moved. It was a, a, an incredible earthquake. And if you go all the way down to the end to the seventh bowl, there's another great earthquake. And so the beginning and ending are bookended by these incredible earthquakes and the coming of Christ. And so, uh, if we could, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 16, and we'll read about the seventh uh, bowl that is opened. Revelation, chapter 16. We see in the, in the Olivet Discourse this sixth seal, and we see this massive earthquake, this celestial power shaken. 
sun and moon are darkened, the islands, and when we, when we read it in chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, when the sixth seal was opened, we read how the mountains are moved, the islands are moved. Well, this period of time, this great second half of the tribulation is bookended with these earthquakes, beginning in verse 17. Then the seventh poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne, saying, It is done. So we are concluding all of these judgments. There were lightnings, rumblings, and thunders, and a severe earthquake occurred like no other since man has been on the earth. So great was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. Every island fled, and the mountains disappeared. Enormous hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell from heaven on the people, and they blasphemed God for the plague of hail, because that plague was extremely severe. So we see here that the great cities on earth are destroyed. One hundred pound hailstones are falling from the sky. And instead of the islands and the mountains being moved, here they completely disappear. It is at the end of this horrific tribulation period when Jesus returns. Now, uh, what is it that we actually expect to see happen when Jesus comes back? What have, what have you got in your mind? Uh, what do we think is going to happen? What do you, what do you see, see happening when He returns? The second coming, when Jesus comes back, when He comes back for you, what do you want Him to do? What are you expecting Him to do? Well, one thing we do expect is uh, when Jesus does come back for us, whether it's at the end of the tribulation, the middle of it, or before it, regardless, when Jesus comes back for us, we expect Him to take us to heaven. Um, remember in John chapter 14, when Jesus was consoling His disciples, they were so upset that He was talking about being crucified and leaving them. And He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. If you, be, you believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, or many dwelling places. If it wasn't true, I would tell you. And he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back for you. So that where I am, you will be also. It is a promise that Jesus is going to come back to us and take us to heaven. That's what I'm looking forward to. There's another thing we expect to happen, is that, and that is for us to receive our glorified bodies. In heaven, I am not expecting to have arthritis or cataracts. I might be bald still. I don't know. but I'm thinking I'm going to shed some of my problems. I hope you feel the same way. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we're going to be changed. We're not going to be like we are right now. We're going to receive this body that is free of sin. It doesn't age. How, we can't even imagine what that's going to be like. But it's going to be good. In 1 John chapter 3, in the first three verses, he says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. He says, The world did not know us because it didn't know Him. But then he says, Dear friends, 
He says, we are God's children now, right now. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And of course, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So Christians are expecting Jesus to come back for us. We're expecting Him to come back. You know, uh, in the in the in the in, in the in Israel, a Jewish wedding followed a basic format, and it was that a man wanted to marry this woman, and so he would go to the dad, and he'd say, "I would like to have your daughter's hand in marriage." And so the father would tell him what it was going to cost him, what what was the dowry, and so this man had to pay the dowry. And once he had paid the price, then he would go away and he would prepare a place for them to live. And about a year later, he would come back unannounced and receive his bride. That's the Jewish wedding in Israel. And so it's a beautiful picture of Jesus returning for us. We are expecting Him to come back and get us so that we will be with Him. And when it happens, we're going to be changed. We're going to receive our new bodies. This is what the church is anticipating. Well, how does that compare with what Israel is expecting to see happen? We've spent the past four months, four weeks talking about this. We've talked about the chronology of end time events in the Old Testament. The chronology that was the bread and butter, the very staples of the, of the Jewish mind. The things that they had been told were going to occur. We went through this so many times, you guys should have it memorized with me, I would think. You know, uh, is, here it is, I've got it right here on the slide. This is the chronology. Israel is going to fall, Jerusalem is going to fall. But in this darkest hour, Israel will repent. And when Israel repents, God comes to the rescue. And He's going to judge the nation's enemies, and then their king is going to establish his kingdom on earth. This is what the Old Testament teaches. We've read several passages about this. There are many, many more. So the Jewish mind is looking for the day when the Messiah is going to come back. They're going to be in a real jam. Things are going to be horrible and bad. And when things go really bad, they're going to realize that they've been living wrong and that they have been in rebellion against God and that Jesus really is the Messiah and they're going to repent of their sins. And they're going to receive Jesus as their Savior. And Jesus is going to come back and rescue them from their darkest hour. And He's going to vanquish their enemies. He's going to judge them. And set up His kingdom. That's what Israel is expecting to see happen. How different that is from what the church is expecting. They're different. Is there any way to reconcile these two things? Many Christians do try to reconcile these things by merging them together. It's making it all work in some kind of thing where it's all merged. And it's a noble effort. Because in this view, God does keep all of His promises, but the promises are now modified. The promises are now being fulfilled through the church because the church is now made up of Jew and Gentile. God is keeping His promises, but He's fulfilling them through the church. So there's no 
future time when Israel, the nation of Israel, is actually going to literally live in their land. There's no future time when Israel is actually going to live in their land under the watchful care of the Messiah. There's no future time when Israel is going to literally live in their land under the watchful care of their Messiah. And that God is going to channel blessings to the whole world through Israel. Why do they think that's going to happen? Because it's what the Old Testament teaches over and over and over again. That's why they're anticipating it. And so in this view, there is no millennial reign. As a matter of fact, the millennial reign is happening right now because Christ is ruling in our hearts, the church. And so in this view, the only thing that we're anticipating is the return of Christ, a judgment of all people, great and small, and then the eternal state. Well, the book of Revelation tells us what's getting ready to happen in great detail. And so, as we turn to the book of Revelation, we should be seeing either a literal fulfillment of all of these promises to Israel, or we should be seeing this merging occur. So, let's turn a few chapters over to chapter 20. Because you see, what God has told Israel that He's going to do, He is actually going to do it. The things that Israel is expecting to see happen are actually going to occur. And we see this in chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and he closed it and he put a seal on it so that no one, so that he could no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones of people seated on them who were given authority to judge. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's Word, who had not worshipped the beast or His image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, they came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. This is Jerusalem. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. 
Then the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name who is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so we see that this judgment of the lost occurs at the end of this 1,000 year period. Just in case you didn't catch it, it says a thousand years about a thousand times. So uh, God wants you to know how long this millennial kingdom is. Now, our church wants to respect the views of other believers who disagree with us because this is a controversial issue in the sense that not all Christians agree. Not all Christians see these things the same way. And so we want to be respectful of that. One reason we want to be respectful is because we could be wrong. We could be wrong. They might be wrong. We might be right. They might be right. We might be wrong. That should bring humility. Just the mere fact that Christians study this and come up with different conclusions should be enough to bring humility. But here at our local church, we do, be, do believe and anticipate a literal fulfillment of all of these expectations that God has promised to Israel. We do believe that when Jesus comes back at His second coming, He is going to rescue Israel and He is going to reign just as the Old Testament is teaching us. And we just read this occurring in chapter 20. In the timeline of things, this happens after Jesus returns. So in chapter 19, Jesus returns. In chapter 20, He establishes His millennial reign. And at the end of chapter 20 is the great white throne of judgment. Let's read this return of Christ in chapter 19. <laughs> I got lost. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's read about this return of Christ in chapter uh, 19, beginning in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. And we remember the first seal was a, a rider on a white horse. So sometimes people would confuse the two. That was the Antichrist. This guy is the real deal. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. From his mouth came a sharp sword that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And so we see that when Jesus returns, He is coming with judgment. He's going to bring judgment, judgment upon the nations there in verse 15. But He's also going to rule. This is a, a reference to what is getting ready to happen. His future reign, that reigning as shepherd of the nations with, a, as, with an iron scepter. It is pointing to what is getting ready to occur in chapter 20. Now, we just spent some time looking at the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel. 
and how they are actually going to be fulfilled. But the things that Jesus told the church are going to be fulfilled too. Just like He promised. It's just that when He comes back for us, it's going to be before the tribulation. Paul talked about this. He said that it's a mystery. There are a number of mysteries in the New Testament. They are things that had not been revealed until now. A secret is something that is exclusive. You don't get to know. It's hidden information. A mystery is not like that. A mystery is inclusive in the sense that uh, it's new information that is available to you. And so it is something that God is now telling us. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Paul says, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. There's that change, that new body will be raised incorruptible. We will all be changed. Well, for those of us uh, here who expect Jesus to return for His church before the tribulation period, this is usually called the rapture. And the reason it's called the rapture is because uh, in the Greek it says to be caught up. And so uh, when it was translated from Greek into Latin, they used the word, the Latin word rapturo. And so it's just a transliteration of that. It's where we get the English word rapture. It means the same thing, to be caught up. It isn't, uh, it isn't when, when Jesus comes back to the church in the rapture, this is not the second coming, and the second coming is really a third coming. Because when Jesus comes back for the church, He doesn't actually return to the earth. Zechariah 14 tells us that among other things that Jesus is going to do when He returns, He's actually going to stand on the Mount of Olives. But we are actually going to meet Jesus in the air. And so I, if, you're, if you will, I'm going to ask you to turn one more time, this time to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Galatians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So go eat popcorn. And then right after that are five T's. Five books of the Bible start with T's. The first two are Thessalonians. First, second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and Titus. Now you got it for the rest of your life. Go eat popcorn and the five T's. We read Zechariah 14 a couple of weeks ago. We remember him standing on the Mount of Olives and it splits in half. Here we see something different. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, uh, we have to remember that what was happening in, in, in Thessalonica, this city in Greece, where Paul founded a church, he had obviously been talking to them about end time events. That's why this is a question. And they were told that Jesus is going to come back for them. And so members of the church had died. And so now they were worried about what was going to happen to them because they have died before Jesus has come back. 
And so Paul answers this question in this letter, beginning at verse 13. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, Christians, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. He's talking about His return. So in verse 15, For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. He could have said mystery, but he says revelation. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will, be rise, will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, how do we know that the rapture actually occurs at the beginning of the tribulation? Does that sound like wishful thinking? Um, some people do not believe that there is a rapture at all, that it's just the second coming. Some people think that the rapture and the second coming occur at the same time. Christians are caught up and then they return to earth with Jesus. Some people see the rapture occurring at the beginning of the tribulation, midway through it, or afterwards. How do we know? Well, the truth is, is that there is no silver bullet that proves the tribulation occurs before the tribulation. But there are many very good reasons why we can draw that conclusion. Some Bible scholars have come up with as many as 50 reasons. This morning we're going to only look at four, and we're going to look at four very briefly. But before I do, I think a word is in order to talk about uh, theology and controversy about theology. And what I would like to say about this is that Christians need to find their answers from the Bible. And that sounds obvious, but that's a key ingredient because we tend to look at the decisions of other men and women, history, uh, tradition. And then another problem is, is that you have to look at the Bible, you have to approach it with humility. And so, um, here's how that would look. Am I prepared to go through the tribulation? Yes. I think I am. I don't know. It's going to be horrible. I'll probably get killed pretty quick. I don't know, but, you know, if that's what it takes, I guess. I'm not tied to the stake and having my fingernails pulled out, so I don't really know if I'd renounce Christ or not until that day. So, I signed up for this. I hope you did too. And so we might go through the tribulation. I don't know. We're going to find out. But we might get raptured out too, ahead of time. We might escape the whole thing. The best solid God could ever do for us. But the question is, is do you really care? Are you impartial about this? Are you able to study the Bible because you just really want to know the answer? Or is it because you are bound and determined to remain faithful and to secure your allegiance to what your parents taught you or what the tradition is or anything? How truthful are you? How humble are you when you approach the Scriptures? 
And so it is key for us to approach the answers, to, to draw our answers from the Bible, and to approach it with humility. And humility is the key if you have any ex expectation of coming up with the right answer. And it also is kind of uh, wonderful because if you're wrong, at least you're humble about it. Because you know that you may not quite have it straight. You know, throughout church history, there's been bad theology. Even when the New Testament was being written, the church had bad theology that had to be addressed. Just because it was the early church doesn't mean they had it all together and were perfect. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches us at all. There's all kinds of problems. There's been bad theology in the church from the very beginning. The doctrine of the Trinity was something that was wrestled with for at least the first four centuries. At least the first four. Years later in the Reformation, they're revisiting the issue of salvation by grace through faith. Isn't that awful? That that had to be revisited in the Reformation, salvation by grace through faith. And then a few hundred years later, eschatology. End times. Now, at no point were these things not important to the church. At no point was the end times or salvation or the Trinity, who God is or who Jesus is. At no point were these things not on the hearts and minds of believers. They were on the hearts and minds of believers from the very beginning. But at different points of time in the church's history, these issues have risen to the surface. This proves to us that we have to go to the Bible. We have to draw our answers from the Bible and we have to approach the Bible with humility. You know, Christians disagree over things like eternal security, whether you can lose your salvation. And I've never understood why Christians are so emotionally charged about proving that you can lose your salvation. You know, I mean, crying out loud. And so, I mean, I, I do realize that the last thing they want to see happen is for Christians to get some false sense of security when they could actually lose their salvation. That's behind that. But wouldn't it be a good thing if you couldn't lose your salvation? Wouldn't that be good? If there's a chance that it's true, then wouldn't that bring some humility to the table as you're studying it? If you've been born and raised in a church where you are told that if you don't walk the line and, and uh, you fall back from the faith and you start walking away in sin and, and uh, walk away, you walk away from God, that you could actually lose your salvation. If that's what you've been taught, then you know, your heart holds on to that. But if someone were to approach you and say, hey, you know what? God doesn't ever let go of you once He saves you. That's something good. That's not something bad. So rather than get you know, all your feathers bristled up and clenching your fists and getting all crazy, you know, no, I can lose it. I can lose my salvation. It seems silly, doesn't it? But this is what we do. It's what we do with politics. It's what we do in arguments with our friends and our spouse. People who disagree with the rapture that don't think there's a rapture, people who disagree with it, call people like me Zionists. Like that's something bad. 
They call me a, a dispensationalist, like it's a, like it's a cuss word. And they take what I say and they characterize it in some kind of straw man argument saying, ooh, the secret rapture. That's not, that's not uh, humble. Because they could be wrong just as much as I could. So as we approach these four reasons, and I'm going to go through them quickly, as I, as I said, as we approach these four reasons, we have to have humility, recognizing that we could actually be wrong. At the end of the day, uh, I have to study the Bible at the best of my ability and teach it with great fear and humility. And so I want to tell you that I have wrestled with this, these issues for many, many years. And I believe that the tribulation is a horrible period of time that God is going to spare us from. And He's going to rapture us out before the tribulation occurs. So I'm going to give you four reasons. Reason number one is because of the order of events that are outlined in Scripture. The way the Bible presents the chronology of things that are going to happen. When we consider the outline of the book of Revelation, John was told to write down what you have seen, that was the risen Christ, appeared to John and said, I want you to write a letter to these seven churches. Write this down. <laughs> and then he said, and then I want you to write what is. And so that's the church. And he wrote, he wrote letters to seven churches. And then he said, write down what must take place after this. And so beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, the church drops out of the picture. Because uh, the church ecclesia was mentioned 19 times up until chapter 4, and then not again until the very end. And that is because the book of Revelation begins to move through the tribulation period. The church is not the focal point. The church is not being discussed, not being addressed, just the nation of Israel. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us that the church itself is a mystery. It was something that was not revealed. If you were in the Old Testament studying the Old Testament, you would never have saw it. It's a mystery. It was not something you would have known about. It wasn't because you were dumb. It wasn't because you were proudful, prideful in the way you studied the Bible. And it was, you know, it was because you didn't know. We studied Daniel 70 weeks. At the 69th week, as it ends, the Messiah is cut off. And as the 70th week begins, it's the great tribulation period, a seven-year period of time. Well, there's been almost 2,000 years between the 69th and the 70th week. We're still waiting for the 70th week to begin. What's been happening in that interim? Us, the church. If you take the church out of the way, the 70th week resumes, 
It's the tribulation period. It's Jacob's trouble. It's the chronology that's in Scripture. We remember when Jesus was in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4 and they gave Him the scroll and He read from Isaiah and He read from Isaiah 61 He read verses 1 and He read verse 2 and stopped halfway through verse 2. Remember? He said, this is the favorable day of the Lord. And then He stopped and He sat down and said, what I've just read has been fulfilled today in Your presence. Everybody was looking at Him. But He didn't read the rest because the rest of the verse talks about says that it's the day of vengeance of God. He separated the two. He separated His first advent from His second advent because when Jesus comes back for the second coming, it is a rescue mission for the nation of Israel. The nations are going to be judged. It is the picture that is presented in the Old Testament. And so there's a chronology there that we see occurring in the Old Testament where the first and second advent are separated by a period of time. And what do you know? That period of time is separated by a great mystery called the church, Ephesians chapter 3. It was, a, it was something that nobody knew was going to happen. This is what's happening between the 69th and 70th week in Daniel's prophecy. This is what's happening between Isaiah 61 verse 2, right in the middle, when Jesus stopped reading. This is what's happening in the book of Revelation in the outline of the book in verse, chapter 1, verse 19 when He comes to the things are going to happen after this. After the church, we're going to have a tribulation period. And there's a really good reason why the church isn't discussed anymore because we're not there. And again, the sequence of events. When we look at the sequence of events here in 1 Thessalonians where your Bible is opened up to, we've talked about the rapture. And guess what happens right after the rapture? Chapter 5 starts, verse 1. Guess what chapter 5 is talking about? The day of the Lord, the tribulation. We're going to read it together, and as we do, this is, I promise, the last passage to read, but I want you to notice the change of pronouns. Because in verses 13 through 18, where we were reading about the church, Paul was including himself. He was talking about all of us. Even those of us who are asleep. We're all going to go to heaven. God's coming back for us. We're all going to be changed. But there is a shift in gears where Jesus goes from us to them. Chapter 5, verse 1. And the times and seasons, brothers, you do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, when they say peace and security, then sudden destruction comes on them. Now look at this. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you brothers, you are not in the dark, so that this day would never overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be sober. Look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are asleep or awake, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. 
This passage I just read introduces the next two points. That God wants to spare us from this wrath and that this is supposed to comfort us. Like I said, we notice that Paul includes himself in the rapture, but he excludes himself and the church from this day of the Lord. Surely you can see that. As we read that, surely you can see that he's removed us from this picture. If you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, Wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Did you hear that? Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. It doesn't mean that churches, Christians, are not going to go through tribulation, trials and tribulations, or be persecuted, put to death for our faith, or that we're not going to have valleys and horrible things happen to us. This is talking about a specific period of time that God is sparing us from. In Revelation chapter 3, you remember in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, Jesus has instructed John to write a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. One of the churches is the church of Philadelphia. And in chapter 3 verse 10, He writes to them, Because you have kept My command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm going to keep you from that hour of testing, a testing that is going to come over the entire world, the entire earth. It is a global wrath, a global tribulation period that we're going to be kept from. Charles Ryder gives the example. He's got a classroom full of students and he wants to reward his A students. So he says, you know what? Since you, all of you guys who've made an A, I'm going to keep you from the final exam. Well, he could make them appear and then he could give them the answers to the test. That's going through it. Or he could tell them that they don't have to come at all. There's a difference. We're going to be kept from the time, from the hour of testing. And this brings up point number three, and I told you that I'm going to go quick, so the last two are very quick. The third one is that this is supposed to comfort us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The tribulation is not comforting. If we know that we are going to endure it, that's not comforting. It's not encouraging. We might have to go through it and we may just have to greet our teeth and bear it. But the Bible's given us the picture that God is doing something for us that is just so nice to spare us from this. Talk about things that we just do not deserve. The, the wonderful things He does for us. He never quits. What a great God. And remember that in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, that it's all in heaven. And the big problem is, is that there's this scroll. It's got seven seals on it, and nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And then God the Father hands the scroll to Jesus. It's Jesus who's opening these seals, these seal judgments. That's not something He's going to do to His kids. I think I'm supposed to went to that one. What's that one say, you guys? What you have seen. Huh? What you have seen, what is, what is. <laughs> okay, that was supposed to be a long time ago. What's that? Is that the four points? Or 
<laughs> All right, there's the four points. Well, the final one, as you can see, is the imminent return of Christ. And uh, if you are waiting for Jesus to come back at the second coming, you might as well take your shoes off because there's a whole bunch of stuff that's getting ready to happen before that ever happens. Right? Temple in Jerusalem, abomination, desolation, all the seal judgments. If you can live through the seal judgments, maybe you get, to, you get to survive the trumpets. You don't really have to worry about Jesus coming back until you get to the very end of the bowls. But if you believe that Jesus can come back for you at any moment, then you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. If all goes as planned, then next week we're going to conclude the Olivet Discourse uh, and looking at how Jesus ends all of this with a warning to us of being ready and what that means for the church to be ready.